I've been having a great time walking through the book of Acts with you. We started this journey last winter and then took a break for the fall to do some other stuff. And now we're back in this amazing story of how the work of God is carried out through the early church, through the power of the Spirit. It's just amazing stuff. And as I've been preparing for these sermons each week, I recognize the tendency, how easy it is to get bogged down in the details. There's just so much interesting stuff. My reading this week had me learning about like the, the myth of the Amazons and all this kind of crazy stuff. And I was like, that's probably not going to preach. So I stopped learning about that and do this other stuff. It's just, it's just bottomless, the things you can do. Um, and it, it reminded me that as we go step by step, passage by passage, I need to remind myself and remind the church that this is part of a much bigger work, that this is a two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, all written by the one and the same Dr. Luke. Uh, This guy uh, interviewed eyewitnesses. He gathered stories about Jesus and his disciples, and and he gathered stories about the growth of the early church. And in fact, Luke was one of the traveling companions at times with the Apostle Paul. So some of this he's gathered from witnesses, some of this he's witnessed himself. It's always a good idea when we're interpreting scripture before turning to commentaries and podcasts and history books. It's always a good idea to reference scripture with scripture, to interpret scripture with scripture first. So even though this evening we're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 8, I wanted to start with a fantastic little story from Jesus, from the gospel of Luke. And Luke 11 9 through 13, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Are these commands, ask, seek, and knock, they're called conditional imperatives. You don't have to remember that if you don't want to, but if you're geeking out, conditional imperatives, and here's what that means, here's why that matters. It means that you don't have to ask a certain number of times before God hears you. It means to live as one who comes to God often and seeks his face because the God you seek is the kind of God who acts generously toward us. Continuing on in verse 11, after the ask, seek, and knock stuff, Jesus has this illustration. And he says, can you imagine a scenario in which one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish? In that scenario, can you imagine him giving him a scorpion instead of a fish? Like, what kind of father would do that? No way. You can't imagine that. Or if your kid asks for an egg, you wouldn't give them a snake or something deadly, would you? Of course not. And Jesus continues, if you then, being evil, fallen, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? If you think it's normal for fallen, imperfect fathers like me, parents out there, to give good gifts to our children, how much more that the Father of heaven will give us the Holy Spirit when we ask. The counselor, the one who releases saving faith into people, the one who reminds us of our adoption into God's family, the one who teaches us and helps us become more and more like Jesus, the one who equips every believer so they can participate in the building up of the church and the kingdom of God. What good news. When we come to God seeking more of God 
more of his life in us, he's not begrudgingly going to comply with our well-articulated request. No, better than that. When we come to the living God with any genuine longing, even if you can't get the words out correctly or in the right language or in the right theology, God hears us. The Father is gracious and generous. The problem is that most of us are so deeply wounded by shame and jaded cynicism that we find it hard to believe this promise from Jesus could really be about us. And sometimes our own shame causes us twists in a funny way so that we get judgmental about other kinds of people. And we think that certain types of people doing certain types of things could never want God and could never be wanted by God. Standing against those roadblocks are Jesus' words, ask, seek, and knock. For those of you who are out there today who have doubts about God's willingness to respond to your asking and your seeking and your knocking, this message is going to be for you. For those who have doubts about God's willingness to rescue the asking and seeking and knocking of your friends and neighbors or any group of people that have put up or you've put up barriers against, then this message is going to be for you. Would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 8? Verses 26 through 40. Philip has just gone up to Samaria and evangelized the Samaritans. And here's where we pick up the story. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a desert road. So he got up and he went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent. He does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said please tell me. Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. 
But Philip found himself as a Zatus, and as he went, passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until it came to Caesarea. Lord, thank you that you are the God who reaches out, that never stops, that goes to great lengths, to unfamiliar places, to hunt us down. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've heard me preach a few times, you hear me semi-regularly repeat these words from one of my mentors, Daryl Johnson, that when I preach Bible, I also like to teach Bible. That's unashamedly his line, and I just love it, because I don't think preaching and teaching are mutually exclusive, and I think that as much as I like to proclaim the word of God that I feel like God has laid on my heart, I also like it when I see the spark in your eyes and you leave with something that allows you to access the text for yourself better. That's way more powerful than coming to be fed by one person if you can access the text better. And so that's what we're going to do. And I thought this passage is kind of textbook uh, in some ways. And so what I wanted to do is share with you how I might approach a text like this. Like how do you how do you come up with what the main point is? Like, where do you, where do you even get that from? And so um, one of the ways you can do it is by focusing on, like, the verbs in a text. So when you're reading a narrative like this, I'm just talking about narrative. I'm not talking about poetry or proverbs or anything like that. But when you're talking about narrative, you pay attention to the verbs. Like, where are people going? And what are they doing? And how are they doing? And what are they saying? You know, so, like, pay attention to the action. So that's one way that you can outline a text. Another way is to pay attention to the prepositions. Where is the action taking place? Where is God located in the story? Is the spirit falling on someone or filling someone? Is Jesus near and present or is Jesus somewhere else on the throne somewhere? So pay attention to where the things are taking place. And that can be a way to outline a text. And in this passage this evening, I've chosen to follow two forms of structure. The first is that sometimes, in a passage like this one in particular, there are bookends. There's just such obvious bookends in chapter uh, 8, verses 26 and 39 and 40, uh, and it begins and ends. The bookends in this passage are that this passage begins and ends with the initiative of God, right? An angel, in verse 26, sends Philip somewhere. And then the Spirit snatches Philip up and sends him somewhere else at the end of the passage. And so clearly, when we have these bookends, one of the, the things I can say with quite confidence that Luke is trying to tell us that God is the main protagonist in the story. As much as happens with Philip and the eunuch, God is in charge of this. He's sending places. His will is being done. And another thing, big picture. When we see God doing this, we think, okay, I'm going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Acts 1.8, what does Acts 1.8 tell us? Wait until you receive power from on high, and you shall become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we saw how the gospel already went out to Jerusalem through the preaching of Peter and through the ministry of the church. Remember how they're sharing everything and being a good witness to their neighbors? And through the trial of Stephen, remember? And last week we saw how the gospel then left Jerusalem, I mean it didn't leave, but it branched out, and it went to Samaria. So we've got Acts 1-8 being fulfilled, Jerusalem, 
Samaria, right, in, in, in that Judea area. And, and in this story, we're going to see a man, this Ethiopian eunuch, who represents the ends of the earth. In Greco-Roman thought, you could not get further away than Eastern Arabia to the east, then Rome to the west, Spain in about 10 years from this, and then Ethiopia was basically everything south of Egypt. That was what they thought Ethiopia was. And so um, this is the ends of the earth. This is a person representing the ends of the earth. And then he gets snatched away and goes to Caesarea, which is Judea. So it, we see God through these bookends fulfilling Acts 1-8 or beginning to fulfill Acts 1-8. So that's one structure. Okay? But within the story, there's another way to organize the text. And this is where we're going to land for the most part. And that is through four distinct questions that we see. If we spend time, well, we're going to, when we spend time with these four questions, I think we're going to unpack everything that the passage has for us, the main points at least. And before we get to these questions, though, we have to recognize that the first hearers of this story would automatically know things that, and take for granted things that we do not know anymore. We don't, anyone know Greek and Hebrew? Uh, um, anyone speak Moreau or Nubian? No, I don't speak Moreau or Nubian either. Uh, we're not from first century, uh, the ancient Near East. There's so much we don't understand that they would have understood. And so we're going to spend a moment unpacking some of this so we can get underneath it a little bit better. Okay, we know that Philip was in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, David and um, Lucy, could you please put up that first map? There we go. Uh, so Philip was in Jerusalem, and he goes up to Samaria. Uh, even though the text says he went down to Samaria, that is because in the ancient world, people didn't think north-south. They literally thought up and down. And Jerusalem is about a mile high. And so they went down, literally, to Samaria. So that's how people thought. Uh, actually, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> but, uh, so they went down to Samaria, uh, and then uh, the angel says to go to this place, um, this desert road uh, between Jerusalem and Gaza, and you see that arrow there next to the coast. Gaza was like the last outpost before you get into this sea of desert uh, that could take weeks to cross before you get to Egypt, your next uh, major spot, okay? So <clears throat> Philip does not know why he's sent to this desolate strip of road, but he obeys. He obeys, and our bookends show us that God is in control, but his will is carried out by obedient image bearers like Philip. It doesn't hurt to have, you know, a good education or good social standing. Uh, it doesn't hurt to have a good job. All the things like our moms and dads told us would be important in life, it doesn't hurt to have those things. But if you're not obedient doesn't matter. On the same token, you don't have to have all those things, but if you are obedient, like Philip, who had the gospel in his heart and the spirit in him, if he's obedient, I, we're talking about Philip. I don't even know the dude's last name. 2,000 years later, I don't know what his education was. I don't know what his social standing was. Um, well, I'm, here, I'm preaching a sermon on him in Bellingham in 2020, so that, that's pretty, because he's obedient, Philip was this young Greek-speaking refugee run out of Jerusalem because of ethnic and religious persecution. He's a nobody in the world. 
except for an obedient servant of God. That's, I would rather be that on my tombstone than somebody in the world that just lived for myself. So there he is on this road toward Gaza, not knowing why he's there or what he's supposed to be doing, when all of a sudden this carriage appears coming down the road. And we can infer from the story that it is headed south, uh, but it is the one who is in the carriage that really matters. We're introduced to an Ethiopian eunuch who is the treasurer of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Too much to unpack here. This is where I spent like a, too much of a day just going crazy with all of, there's these cool like tribes of warrior women that the Amazons were based off of and oh, Scythians and it's so cool. But okay, first of all, Ethiopia. Let's go to that first map. If you know your modern geography, um, thinking like Tommy, um, you know, <laughs> Ethiopia is there. It's in the what we call the Horn of Africa. It's just west of Somalia, um, and that's where kind of modern uh, Ethiopia is. But in the ancient world, let's go to the next one. Um, just, we're going to zoom in a little bit now. So there's Ethiopia, modern Ethiopia. In the ancient world, Ethiopia was uh, a general area that is actually in, in what today is Sudan. So let's go to the third slide. That's my little arrow. That's my that's good as I get. But that's that right up there before the Nile branches on, uh, near Khartoum. It was a little town. That's a, there's actually ruins there now called Moreau. And it's believed that Candace was the queen of a, a nation state, a city state in that area right there. So um, close to the Red Sea, uh, and these people would have traded with Alexandria and also um, people from uh, modern Saudi Arabia, those, um, uh, those tribes that were uh, Bedouin in, in those days. Um, in the setting of our story, Ethiopia contained several kingdoms, and many scholars believe that Candace was this amazing queen of Moreau, uh, which was extremely wealthy and powerful at this time. Candace, by the way, is a title, kind of like Pharaoh is the way that Egyptians would say king. Like, why are there, how is, how does Pharaoh guy live 5,000 years? No, 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 Pharaoh's the title that the king of Egypt gets. Candace is the title that the queen of Nubia or Moreau or these areas would have, okay? So, can we bow to you, Candace. Yep, yep. Yes. <laughs> um, the man in the chariot was a very high-ranking official, uh, and he's riding in this carriage, which shows his status. He's probably in the top five most powerful people under the Candace or the Queen of Moreau. As the treasurer, he would have been responsible for all of the trade policies and financial decisions for that entire nation. So on the one hand, this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, is a very powerful and influential person. He, he, he represents this ancient civilization that is wealthy and glorious and, and exotic, this land to the south. But on the other hand we learn that he is a eunuch. He was a man who had his testicles removed, likely as a child or as an adolescent. He was literally raised to be a slave and to serve in the royal court. 
Many queens in the ancient world were served by eunuchs because there could be no concern over inappropriate sexual relationships. And it was believed that, like a, like a gelding horse, that a, a, a eunuch, a person like that, would be loyal and strong and keep their mind on business and not other things. They made strong and compliant servants, or that was the belief. Even though this man held a high office in the court of Candace, eunuchs were looked down upon by other men as unmanly, less than fully human, and definitely as ceremonially and socially unclean. And that is among his own people, other Ethiopian people. Compound that now with the fact that as a sexual minority and as a black African man, he would have stood out as a total other in Israel, a completely marginalized person in Israel. He comes from a kingdom that worshiped all kinds of local deities, melding together their own tribal deities with Egyptian, Greco-Roman, Persian, and Babylonian religions. Just as an aside, in Moreau, there's this statue of Augustus Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and it's not because they took to worshiping Augustus Caesar, it's because these warrior women conquered Augustus's troops when they came down and tried to take Moreau, so that was pretty rad to learn. Anyway, yeah. In Israel, a man like this Ethiopian eunuch couldn't even have access to the inner courts of the temple. Why don't you think about that for a minute? His journey from Moreau to Jerusalem to come worship God It was about a three-month ordeal. And he knows in his mind, in his heart, according to the law and according to the way that the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests were running the temple, he knows that he could never be a full convert to Judaism. He could never be ceremonially clean enough to enter into the holy place where the real family of God worshiped. He could never get there. Physically, he could just never get there. And yet this man traveled three months to Jerusalem to get as close as he could to the God who had apparently won his heart. Now, how did the Ethiopian eunuch, way down south, how did this person hear of God? We really don't know. But we do know that his kingdom did lots of trade with Egypt and Alexandria in particular and the coastal peoples. And when you trade with people, you hear ideas and you you read texts and you, you hear stories. And I will say this, scholar after scholar, Christian, Jewish, And just not even religious would say, you know, even though he couldn't be a full participant in Judaism, the God of Judaism is so much more gracious and compassionate than anything he would have had access to in Ethiopia. Anything he would have had access to on the Greco-Roman scale, those gods are vindictive and mean and spiteful. And there's basically a caste system that he could never get out of. It's so interesting learning all of this stuff. You know, in Alexandria, Egypt, that's where the Septuagint was written. So the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the the language of the world at that time, the the Mediterranean world, in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I'm just 
speculating, but if this man's in charge of all the trade for his kingdom, he's probably going to Alexandria from time. And I'm wondering if that's where he gets this Isaiah scroll in Greek, which was the, you know, the language that he could have uh, understood with everyone else. Regardless, Philip recognizes that he's reading the Isaiah scroll because back then people always read out loud. Uh, in fact, uh, it, like in Augustine's um, Confessions, if you've ever read that, there's this little line where he was talking about uh, Ambrose, who um, he's, he's making fun of him, sort of, for reading silently, but his lips still move. So it actually, like it's so ingrained that people read out loud that even when they read silently, their lips moved. Anyway, that's how Philip, who's running alongside this chariot, knows what the man is reading. He's reading it out loud. It's Isaiah. So he runs and he hears him reading Isaiah, and here we have the first question. Remember how we're structuring the text. Here's the question. Do you understand what you're reading? Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. I would say that a man from all the way from Ethiopia who has a small text, small part of the Bible, who travels three months to go up to get as close as he can to worship, I would say that's seeking, right? Ask and you will receive, right? Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. And how does God do it? He sends this Philip to meet him on the road. The man is clearly seeking God. Asking leave of your queen for a journey of that length to go, I mean, it, it reminds me of when Moses asks Pharaoh, can, I, uh, can we go out in the wilderness for a few days to worship our God? And then he's going to risk going to a foreign land where he's going to stick out as a complete other from the mainstream. And to do it all believing in his heart, he's, I'm never going to be fully accepted. I can't be a proselyte to Judaism. That might be the very definition of seeking. And God reaches out to those who are seeking, Amen. And when he does, he usually reaches out to people through other people. People like Philip, willing to ask relevant questions. Who are the people in your life that came alongside you when you were seeking? Who asked you relevant questions about what it was you were reading or what it was you were going through? Who are the Phillips in your life who listened to you? Listened more than they talked at you and tried to help you make sense of what God was already doing in your life. Those are the people that make differences in our lives. Who in your life might be struggling with the story? It might be the actual biblical story. It might just be the story of making sense of your, their life. But who, who is in your life that's struggling to make sense of the story, that might need someone like you to come alongside as God's response to their asking and God's answer to their seeking and God's presence in their knocking. The eunuch responds with a question of his own. Do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I <laughs> unless somebody guides me? You seem like you know something, you're asking the right questions. Hop on up. Let's have a conversation. Now, this eunuch, uh, the way I see it, takes two risks. He risks in two directions. First, as a royal official, 
He humbles himself in public by admitting his need for help. Royal officials who serve queens and kings, they know that they don't just represent themselves. The idea of a personal, my identity is my own kind of thing, that didn't exist. And so he knows that in humbling himself, he's humbling his kingdom, her queendom, his candidate. So there's a risk he's taking. Second, he risks rejection. As Philip could have kept his distance from this eunuch, Uh, And just left him as ignorant and alone instead. But Philip seizes the opportunity and the invitation. And he joins the eunuch in his carriage. And the passage of scripture in question comes from Isaiah uh, 53, which is what's known colloquially as one of the servant songs. Let me read it for you again. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer, is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The third question in the text, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Oh, to be in that chariot and to hear what Philip says. This reminds me of the road to Emmaus. I just want to know what Jesus said when starting from Moses, he relayed the meaning of the scriptures. Like, what did he say? I would just preach that every Sunday. Anyway, (laughs) all we know is that Philip began teaching from the scripture, and this is a quote, he preached Jesus to him. All the asking and the seeking and the knocking motivated by our deepest longings, they all lead back to Jesus. I have little doubt that Philip taught what Paul and the church would later teach, and that is that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah that Isaiah was pointing toward. That Jesus is the one who became the Passover lamb, the one who died in our place, the one who defeated death through absorbing its worst rather than overpowering it like we might do in all the cool fighting movies. But I think there's another layer that goes beyond a question of atonement and Jesus' sacrificial role for humanity. That's all there. But, you know, there are other quotes in Isaiah 53 that could really get at the atonement or Jesus taking our place if that was the main point Uh, of this story. And so here's what I think is going on. This particular passage, this particular quote in Isaiah 53 has to do with the humiliation of God, the gentleness of God, the God of the universe who's willing to humble himself and to be humiliated in public. Yes, he was victorious over death and over sin. Yes, Jesus was vindicated. That's what the ascension is all about. We worship a risen and reigning Lord who is at the right hand of God right now. That's where he is. But to get there, before he knew that victory, Jesus was humiliated. He was jeered at. He was hung naked on a cross in public for people to to come and to sneer at. Um, and to walk by. He was a, a, a living and dying example of not crossing the Roman Empire. That was the point of crucifixion. 
And on that cross, as he was naked and bleeding out, he was abandoned by nearly everyone who had followed him. Not everyone, but nearly everyone. The eunuch is one of the five most powerful people in Ethiopia, and yet, as a eunuch, he would have been humiliated on a number of occasions in his life. He would be looked at with a judgmental eye by all kinds of holier-than-thou people. To the Jews, his sexuality would make him always an outsider. And I wonder if recognizing Jesus as both Lord and humble meant a lot to the eunuch. I think it must have. And I'm finding as I come more and more uh, to grips with my own feelings of shame and humiliation, the gentleness and humility of God means a lot to me, just as much as his victory. He's approachable. You see, there's a personal connection with Jesus in this text. Yes, on the one hand, we are to know and to serve Jesus because he is the creator. He is the savior. He is the king. He's the Lord of all. That just is. Like, I don't get to have a say about that. Like, he just is the king. He's worthy. And yet, our faith isn't just some transactional thing where I begin believing those things about Jesus and then, well, that's it. I think that Jesus goes to great lengths to actually reach us. You know, he has every right when he comes to earth to set up a throne and to say, I'm here, worship me. But instead, he wants our hearts. If the Ethiopian eunuch has the Isaiah scroll, it would be about 16 feet long, by the way, and he's reading Isaiah 53, then I'm guessing he's got Isaiah 56 in there too, which Collins read earlier in the service. And in that passage, God gives vision for the future when his people would be made up not just of ethnic Israel, but of every single person who comes to trust and obey him. Even eunuchs are mentioned twice in that text. I think Collins read eight verses. I saw eunuchs twice in there as some of the outlier people who would be included in the family of God through allegiance to God. As Philip is unpacking this text and sharing about Jesus being the one who fulfills all of this Isaiah stuff, I imagine the fourth question in the text burning and bursting forth from the Ethiopian. He came to to Jerusalem seeking, but in reality, he's been found by the God who pursues. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? In your Bible, there's probably brackets around verse 37. Later writers almost undoubtedly added verse 37 into the text. None of the early manuscripts have it, which is why I'm even saying this. Uh, In later years, Christianity began to grow in popularity, and the church ran into a problem of people being baptized as a a response to groupthink. Everybody's doing it. My friends are doing it. Let's get baptized. Look, water, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Well, um, actually, you don't have any faith <laughs> or knowledge of the Lord. That would be a preventing you from being baptized. And so they, they wrote this in as kind of a, a catechism, as kind of a litmus test so that people would at least have a living faith before they got in the water and were baptized. 
It's verse 37. It's the one. Okay. But in the original story, there can be no doubt about this man's devotion and faith. It was like, I don't even like puzzles. Sorry, people that like puzzles. But like, if you have one of those thousand pieces and you're missing one piece, like the, you think the dog got it or the kids missed it or something like that, and you find that one piece, like I know, I've seen the look on Christy Wilson's face when she, you know, she does these like 5,000 pieces. Um, it, it, it means like, it's like this guy is seeking and seeking, and he just can't put it all together, and he finds the missing piece. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled all of his longing and all of his searching. What a fantastic story. What incredibly good news. The good news for us is that Jesus is humble, the humble God who pursues us with his love. The good news for outsiders is that Jesus reaches out, Jesus pursues, that God is at work. Whether you feel like you're too far gone or the person in your life is too far gone, no, that's just not true because God is always at work. He won't coerce. But he is right there as soon as there's a longing, an asking, a seeking, and knocking. There's a Philip um, to say, do you understand what you're reading? And I also think that there's good news as a warning. If God is pursuing the outsider, then we better not stand in his way. We better not stand in his way. How can we be more like Philip be more open to, working, to God working in the lives of other people? How can we learn to ask honoring questions rather than putting up obstacles that may not exist? Like there's already enough obstacles. That's in scripture. There's obstacles all over the place, but we don't need to add any of those obstacles. That's not our job. Our job is to say, do you understand the story? What, what's God doing in your life? As we close, we're reminded by the structure of the text by the bookends, that the Spirit of God is at work, always pursuing those who ask, seek, and knock. There are no lengths he will not go to answer and to pour out his life so that we might experience it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know some of the ancients called you the hound of heaven in an endearing way, and I thank you that you have... Uh, and continue to chase me down and so many people uh, in this room and so many people in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you never give up uh, wooing and pursuing. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us hearts uh, a disposition of asking and seeking and knocking for more of the Lord, for not being content uh, with just a head knowledge or what we have going on right now but to be more fully yours. Lord, we pray uh, together for our world, for the people in our lives who might seem far from you, who might actually be in a course that's leading them further from you. And I pray, God, that um, you would help them to be in touch with their deepest longings and to ask and to seek and to knock. And Lord, help us to be sensitive to your spirit to be like Philip, who was willing to go um, to an unknown place for unknown reasons and just be available. Help us to be, be available in our, our friendships and in our workplaces, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our families. 
Lord, work in and through us, we pray. Amen.